like I was sort of popping out of the door then. It was a bit scary, actually. Uh, we are reading the Bible. We've got two uh, readings this morning, nice and balanced, from the Old Testament and from the New. We're going to start off from Psalms chapter 2, and then we're going to go into Matthew chapter 2 after that. So if you've got your Bibles there, or indeed your smartphones if you want to look on, and it's also on the screens as well, I think. Yes, it is. Good. Excellent. Okay, starting with Psalms chapter 2. Why do the nations conspire and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let, them, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them with his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me, and I will make you the nations, sorry, I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son, or he will be angry, and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up at a moment. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Moving to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, also on the screen there. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law, and asked them where the Messiah was to be born, in Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, For this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judea. For out of you will come a ruler, who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they, went over, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child and his mother, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And after having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country via a different route. Thanks, Tim, and good morning, everybody. You know... Uh, actors, animators, and even Muppets have done their best to capture the brilliant work of Charles Dickens' story, A Christmas Carol on the Silver Screen, and to give us a portrayal uh, of the story of the miser, the tight-fisted miser Ebenezer Scrooge, 
who would be visited by three ghosts. They would come through his door and they would grant him perspective of his life as they would present to him a picture of Christmas past, Christmas present and Christmas future. And so today as we begin our series, A Christmas Carol, which we have shamelessly stolen from Mr. Dickens, we too want to take the opportunity to visit Christmas past, Christmas present, Christmas future, and even Christmas eternal. And we do that through the songbook of the Bible, perhaps the first carols, the book of Psalms. As we do this, my hope is perhaps in a less traumatic way than was the case for Ebenezer Scrooge, but in an equally spiritual and equally transformative way, we might look again not at ghosts coming through the door, but at the living Christ who comes through the door at Christmas. The one who came to us, God in flesh, who entered into history, for that's what we celebrate at Christmas. That we might look again at that, and this morning as we visit Psalm 2 together, that we might look at Christmas past and learn a little more about the God who comes through the door. The one who, as he comes through the door, will cause some to be disturbed and some to be delighted. And so come with me to Psalm 2. Psalm 2 is a story of the might of the Messiah, the Messiah or the Christ, God's chosen one, God's anointed, because Psalm 2 introduces us to what this Christ is, what this Messiah is. We're told that the Messiah is God's chosen ruler. Verse 2, where God says, I have my anointed. He is my anointed one. That is, he is the one I have chosen. I've placed my spirit upon him. And that everyone might know, oil is placed upon him. He's anointed. He is the one of God's choosing. But further, God says, he is the one that I, God, have chosen. And there's this beautiful play of language between verses 4 to 6. Earlier in the psalm, we hear about the kings of the earth. They rise up, they have their strategies, they have their plans. But the kings of the earth are set against, verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven. Just like that beautiful language we sang a little bit earlier, pleased as man with man to dwell. You love the way songs sort of play ideas and, and, and sounds and words against one another. The kings of the earth do this but the one enthroned in heaven has done that. And what has the one enthroned in heaven done in response to the kings of the earth? He says, I, I have chosen my guy. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. So we learn of the Messiah in Psalm 2, that he is God's chosen and anointed and installed from the one enthroned in heaven. We learn in Psalm 2 of the Messiah, specifically from verse 9, that this Messiah is the one who will have victory over the enemies of God. That's a sobering thought at this time, particularly at Christmas, where we think of peace on earth, but to remember that God has enemies. That God who is holy and righteous has those who rebel against him. Who have those who we pray have not yet come to repentance and been received into his kingdom, into his family, into his fellowship and friendship. God has enemies. And this is really concrete in ancient times. Because as you look at Psalm 2, this is the nation of Israel and their king. And they will war 
at times against surrounding nations. It's very concrete when you're in a war like that. But of course, this, uh, this earthly war situation points to a greater significance that there is a spiritual war going on. There are those who have not yet been won to the kingdom of God and are still in a kingdom of darkness. Well, Psalm 2 says there is one who God has chosen and that chosen king will always, will have victory over the enemies and those who oppress God's people. And finally, Psalm 2 teaches us something else about the Messiah. Verse 12, that the Messiah is the one through whom God's blessings and God's curses are mediated to the earth. Here, verse 12, kiss his son or he will be angry and your way, your way of rebellion against his son, against his Messiah, will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment, but blessed, made joyful, filled from within, made whole and complete, blessed are all who seek refuge and take refuge in him. The psalm tells us of a king who is God's chosen king. The psalm tells us that this king will have a victory over God's enemy. And the psalm tells us that this king, this Messiah, this Christ, is the one in whom God's blessing, fullness and peace is mediated and God's judgment and his curse is mediated. And so the psalm says, those of you high and low, you kings of the earth, look to him. Pledge your allegiance to him. And as we can see already, this announcement of a Messiah will cause some to be disturbed and some to delight. Now, Israel have the Messiah as a piece of history and a piece of hope. Israel know the Messiah as history, something they have enjoyed and something they will hope for. Of course, in their history, Israel knew the reign of David, their most famous Messiah, their most famous anointed one. And so it wouldn't be wrong or blasphemous for us to refer to King David as David Messiah or David Christ even, for he is the anointed one. Now, David's reign was amazing. And Psalm 2 is a reflection of some of the things that God did with David. In fact, you could also read 2 Samuel 7 where God says to David, you are my son. Now, what does that mean to be the son of God? From time to time, we might have said, oh, son of God, that's what they say of Jesus. That's how we know he's God. It's not strictly true. When we speak of God the son, we're speaking of the very real and true claim that Jesus is divine. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. But when we say son of God, we're actually not making a divine claim. We're not making a divine claim, but we are making a specific claim. How do we know this? Well, because God calls angels son of God. God calls the nation of Israel his son. God calls you and I sons. If you think that's made you divine, let's catch up after the service and just straighten a few things out. Son of God doesn't make you divine. What does it do? Well, as God says this to David in the first context, perhaps a really easy way for us to think of this is God saying, hey, today you join the family business. 
We all know in ancient times, you didn't sort of go through with your careers advisor and work out what you want to do. You do what your dad does. And so when God says to David, to Solomon, to Jesus, even to his angels or to his people, he's saying, you are in the family business. You go where I go. You do the business I do. Your apprenticeship will be served with me. I will teach you and you'll do it like I do it. So in the psalm, God is saying in the first instance to David, David, you're my son. You're in the family business. You work with me for you're the anointed one. You're the chosen one. You will mediate my blessings. You'll be the representative of the family business. I go with you and you go with me. Now in 2 Samuel 7, as God's saying these things to David, he also speaks to David of two very real and significant things in the future of David. He speaks of discipline and he speaks of a descendant and both are real. God warns David that he will discipline his descendant, the son of David. He'll discipline him with the rods of men. And in fact, that's something that happens because after David comes Solomon. And Solomon, though starting out very well, loses track with God. And following Solomon, the kingdom of Israel will split. And more and more, the kings will not walk in the ways of the Lord. And so God will bring the discipline of men upon them. For the northern kingdom, under their king, the Assyrians will come against them and they will war with them and they will cart them off into exile and the northern kingdom will be no more. For the southern kingdom, as we well know, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians will come against them. Jerusalem will be destroyed and they will be carted off into exile in Babylon. Before, as we learnt about in our series in Ezra and Nehemiah, they will return. But at their return, though they knew the history of having a magnificent Messiah, David, who mediated God's blessings and curse, who was the anointed chosen one of God, who had victory over his enemies, now Israel comes back and what was history has become hope. Their hope now is as they've been told, the Messiah will come, the descendant of David will come. They almost look to the door in hope for that Messiah, God's chosen one to return. God's one who will give victory over the enemy to return. The one who will bring God's blessing and God's curse to return. And so now they know the Messiah, not just as history, but as hope. And they're looking to see who will come. And it's here, many, many years later, after what must have felt like a very barren time, the announcement of the birth of Jesus comes. And with the birth of Jesus come Christmas carols. We sang many of them last night. We sang some of them this morning, and I've written a new one. I'm going to have an accident here. I better be careful. I've written a new one. We've all heard We Three Kings. I thought I'd one-up it, literally, I give you we four kings. As we come to Matthew's gospel and the announcement of Jesus, God who comes through the door into the pages of history, we actually meet four contenders for kingship. And the first one is a guy called King Herod the Great. Now, King Herod the Great is in every sense a king. 
but he is in no sense a Messiah. He is not God's chosen one. He is not God's anointed. But he certainly is a king. What do we know about Herod? Well, Herod is a guy who had a dad like most people. His dad's name is Antipater. And his dad, Antipater, now here's the interesting thing. Here's how we certainly know this guy is not the descendant of David. This is not God's chosen Messiah. This is not God's anointed one. Because Antipater wasn't even a Jew. In fact, Antipater was an Idumean. And the Idumeans were a people who came from the tribe of Edom. And the tribe of Edom were the people who Israel warred against on their way to the promised land. And Edom are the people who descended from Esau. And Esau, you might remember, is the twin brother of Jacob, of whom God said, Jacob I loved, Esau not so much. Though his love, of course, was extended to those people, but his blessing and his fullness and his salvation would come through Jacob. So here we have King Herod the Great descending from the not people of God. He's not of David. He's not of Jacob. He's not of Israel. So how does he get there? How has this Edomite become king of the Jews? Politics. So this was a wealthy family. Antipater and his father before him, Antipas, not to be confused with the later Herod Antipas, they were a wealthy family. And Antipater and Herod the Great did very well at making friends with Roman generals. And through their friendship with Roman generals and the right posture with Roman generals, you might hear a bit of a psalm to kings of the earth planning and plotting. Through their planning and plotting and strategizing with the kings of the earth and the generals and through their wealth and achieving some victories for Roman generals, the Roman Senate installed King Herod the Great, the Edomites, as king of the Jews. So how did he go as king of the Jews? Well, I've got to tell you, I've been to Israel. It's 2,000 years since his reign, and you can still see that that guy is worthy in some part of being called Herod the Great. In fact, most of the structures, the ancient structures that are still worth seeing, you'll ask your tour guide, wow, who built that amazing aqueduct that's still there? King Herod the Great. Wow, what remains of the temple? Look at the size of those stones and the engineering of Hezekiah's tunnel and all that. Who built that? King Herod the Great. Wow, this amazing palace, Caesarea Maritima, where Pontius Pilate would live for a time. Who built that? King Herod the Great. And time and time again, the pages of history insist that some part of the name King Herod the Great is a worthy title. This is a man who, yes, whilst morally not great, certainly advanced the cause of Israel. Caused this nation that was struggling along to start to move forward. He did some great and amazing things and was quite a successful king. His results are pretty good. How are his relationships? Not great. See, his relationships with the Jewish people were fractured. Why was that? Because his relationship with God was very fractured. 
This is a man who came to his space by politics. He took what he liked of Judaism and used that. He took what he liked of the Hellenistic religions and used that. And even the temple he built was a temple that had icons and idols from beyond the Jewish people. It was a contaminated space. And his leadership was a contaminated leadership. He was certainly a king, but he was in no way a messiah. He was not God's anointed one. So how does he react? Well, have a look at Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. When King Herod heard that the Messiah has come through the door, that God has entered into humanity, how did he react? Well, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now, what does it mean for all Jerusalem to be disturbed? Does this mean that amongst the whole city, not one faithful person could be found? That would be hard to sustain because Luke introduces us to people like Simeon and Anna. They were faithful people. Matthew introduces us to faithful people. This might be a little bit like when we speak about, and in our nation's capital today, conversations took place about whatever. We're looking at the place of leadership for the people of God, the city, Jerusalem. Now, whilst there's a king here who is not a Messiah, there's something else we should realize about a Messiah. This king is not a messiah, and dare I say, a messiah is not always a king. One of the leading New Testament scholars of our time, Don Carson, reminds us of this. Messiah, or Christ, often we say, and Christ means king. Sometimes. Messiah, or Christ, means anointed. And throughout the history of God and his people, God has led his people, not just with kings. He has sometimes anointed a prophet. He's anointed a prophet, someone who would speak the word of God, not just in a predictive sense, but who would say, remember what God has said, that is why this is happening, that would guard God's word and announce, thus says the Lord to the people. Well, in the time of Jesus' birth in Jerusalem, this prophetic office, this guarding of the word of God was not done by an anointed Messiah or an anointed prophet. It was done by a group called the Pharisees. The Pharisees had ownership. They were the men who guarded the Torah, the word of God, and even built some laws upon, up on top of it. And you will see Jesus conflict with them later on. Throughout history, God has also not only anointed kings and prophets, he's also anointed priests. Those who would make atonements, those who would represent humans before God and God before humans, the mediators. We read of Psalms like oil running down Aaron's beard because the priest was an anointed one who would receive God's spirit and oil would be poured on him as a sign of anointing. Now, at the time of Jesus' birth, there is another one who would occupy the space of priests. These are called the Sadducees. Now, later we read that the Sadducees don't even believe in the resurrection. So they're sad, you see. Part of when you get ordained is that you promise to tell that joke whenever you speak of Sadducees. The Sadducees, not renowned for their theology, but loving politics, strangely enough, had actually purchased the priesthood. Rather than the anointed priests, they were the political priests. So right now, all of Jerusalem has a king on the throne who's not a messiah, has guardians of the word who are not anointed, and have a political priesthood called the Sadducees. How do they receive the news of God's chosen one coming through the door? 
they're disturbed. Because isn't that my job? Isn't that my space? Herod might say, look what I've achieved. The Pharisees might say, look what we have guarded. The Sadducees might say, we're in control. But God has chosen his Messiah, his Christ who comes through the door. And it's in this space that I introduce you to the next three kings, the Magi. This is the carol you know a little bit better, right? We three kings, only we don't know that they were kings and we don't know that there were three. What we do know from, from Matthew is that they were Magi. So these people who come along are Magi. Now, what's a Magi? Tarot card reader? It's probably a good modern translation. Somewhere between maybe fortune teller, sorcerer, guy mixed up in all the stuff that the Old Testament says, give that a wide berth. These guys are left fielders. These guys are wisdom seekers looking for the way. Maybe they're scientists. Maybe they're magicians. It's hard to know exactly, but they'll dabble in a little bit of everything. And somehow they've heard of a prophecy of a king who will come. How many came? I don't know. Nobody does. But if I'm traveling in the ancient world with things like gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and I am maybe a king, I'm bringing some bodyguards with me. I don't think we're we three kings. I think we're we caravan of magi. We people who came. We people who come from afar. We people who are from the nations. We're not Jews. We people who have been involved in all the stuff maybe you're not meant to be, but we people who are seeking the truth. Will they come and why do they come? Well, they respond to what a friend of mine once called, they respond to GPS. They find Jesus by GPS. God pointing star. They respond to the God pointing star. They have heard in their search for wisdom of one who will be born king of the Jews. Perhaps they have heard that the one who God chooses who will be king of the Jews will be the one through whom God mediates his blessing and his curse. Perhaps they've heard that the one who God appoints as king will be the one who will have victory over his enemies. Perhaps, perhaps they've heard that the one who was born in God's time will be the one of God's choosing. And so they respond to the GPS and they come along and what do they do? Matthew 2.11 tells us this. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him the gifts of a king. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. And they worshipped him. They came as magi and they left with messianic hope. In fact, I would contend they left in time as little messiahs because in receiving the king, receiving God's anointed messiah and worshipping him, these people in the fullness of time would receive God's holy spirits and would also be of God's anointed, as are you if you will receive the king, if you will receive the the prophets, if you will receive the priest, the one who is of God's choosing. For he is the one who mediates the blessings and the curses of God. 
he is the one God has chosen and his name is Jesus. Christmas is where we celebrate that Jesus has come through the door. The one of God's choosing has come to us. And brothers and sisters, you're going to find if you've got yourself or someone or something else on the throne of your life right now, anticipate some disturbance because he won't take second. He's come to be first. Christmas calls for repentance. Christmas calls for us to adopt the position of the Magi that wherever you're from, whatever you've done, whatever you've been into, now respond to the GPS, the God-pointing star who says, there, the one who comes through the door, Jesus, he is the hope. He is the one of my choosing. He is the one that gives the victory over everything that stands against God's kingdom. And he is the one in whom you can be blessed. Let's pray together. Our gracious heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus. We thank you that by the power of your Holy Spirit, God took on flesh and came through the door of our earthly realm and we met the Messiah, the Christ eternal Jesus. We thank you that he is the one of your choosing. He is the one who reigns over your kingdom. He is the one who acts as your priests, the one who atones for us and brings us before you. We thank you that he is your prophet, the one who brings your word and the revelation of your person and your works most perfectly. And so, Heavenly Father, if we are disturbed now, May you help us to achieve repentance where rather than be disturbed at this threat from Jesus, may we receive him with glad hearts as the Magi did so many years ago. May we delight at his coming. May we kiss the Son and pledge our faithfulness to him. For in him there is blessing and there is salvation. And we pray in his name. Amen.